This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I live in New York City, more specifically on the island of Manhattan. For many of us that live in this boisterous, bossy, and bustling town, we have grown to believe that we live in the finest place in the world, filled with the best of everything, the biggest opportunities, and, of course, the idea that if you could make it here, yada, yada, yada. I am a native New Yorker, and suffice it to say, after nearly 44 years here, I have become used to the unusual, or what is considered usual here, people sleeping in the streets, amputees begging in the subways, celebrities standing at ATMs or online for a basketball game, limousines parked in front of dive bars. Everything is acceptable in New York City, and most of us like it this way. The visual landscape in Manhattan is among the richest in the world, whether it be the sensory overload of LED signs on 42nd Street or the simple handmade signs over family-run businesses like Barber and Beauty on 9th Avenue or the soft porn Calvin Klein posters towering over Houston Street or the constantly running, frightening America's debt meter which computes the hundreds of thousands of dollars of our individual household debt or the witty and now vernacular powerful public theater signs we have been treated to over the last two decades. My favorite sign is one that I have been oogling for years, as is my habit. I will purposely take cab routes just to see some of my favorite visual landmarks, Tibor Kalman's askew clock atop the Red Square apartment building, Keith Haring's crack-is-whack mural off of the Harlem River Parkway, or the polka-dotted cement mixers lining the East River. I love to look at the John Henry fireboat parked off of the Chelsea Piers and the 70s-style rainbow decal in the window of a brownstone on 13th Street. It's been there as long as I have, and every time I pass it, I can't help but wonder if the apartment has been inhabited by one family this whole time or if every new tenant that has lived there has simply kept it there because, well, it too makes them smile. I often ritualize my viewings every year during Gay Pride Week. I make sure I get a good look at the Empire State Building graced in lavender lights. Whenever I go to Madison Square Garden, I must look at the engraved tiles of anonymous sports fans dedicating the small rectangular space to loved ones or to themselves. Every day on my walk to work, I hope to see new handwritten signs from the little church on 31st Street offering hope and inspiration or an admonition to just stop being ridiculous for a day. I haven't told you about my favorite sign yet. It was a sign that graced the intersection of Allen Street and Houston. It was in a bold upper and lowercase script, hand-painted many, many years ago. The type was huge. The sign was the length of the building's side, so you could see it all along Allen Street, and it was black on a white background. It stated simply, Economy Foam. I was obsessed with this sign for years, not only because it was simple and heartbreakingly beautiful, well, because it was so 
odd. Who knew there were grades of foam? I imagined that there was a premium foam and a super premium foam and perhaps even an ultra premium foam, like milk or airline seats or the sizes of American apparel T-shirts. Who knew that this type of choice could exist? About four or five months ago, I was once again visiting the East Village and drove by Economy Foam, and to my horror, the sign was gone. Apparently, the building was coming down, and Economy Foam had vacated. I was inconsolable. I had no visual evidence of this sign other than than what was etched in my mind, and now that it was gone, I worried that it would fade forever from my memory. Well, I needn't have worried. Well, sort of. Economy Foam has now returned to the intersection of Allen and Houston Streets, but in true New York fashion, it has been redesigned. The name is still Economy Foam, but everything else couldn't be more different. It's now in a sans-serif, all-lowercase font, perhaps myriad or interstate, white type dropping out of a forest green background, and it is as trendy and suave-looking as anything you would see in Moss or Conrad's. I was bemused and also bewildered. I mean, what could the market for economy foam be? I still don't know for sure, but I can tell you this. For the last three days, I've been in Appleton, Wisconsin. It is a quaint and very Midwestern town, lots of strip malls and Walmarts and Costco's. It is a very family-oriented town. Moms screen the kids' movies before they take their children to see them. Churches are full on Sunday, and nobody ever wears all black. On my sojourn to the only Starbucks in Appleton, I took in this new landscape, and suddenly I did a double take. There, parked in front of Jake's Subs, right next to the Starbucks, was a commercial van. And the business it was advertising on the side of the truck was this. Tailored foam. Not economy, not premium or ultra premium, but tailored It was beautifully designed, very confident and proud, obviously a successful-looking business. And as I took it all in, I couldn't help but laugh at myself as I realized very happily that no matter where you are in the world, there is always something to look at that will teach you something, change the way you think, or just open your mind to lots of new possibilities of things you never considered before. Tailored foam. Who would have thought? Dear listeners, there is likely no designer whose images have come to be visually identified with the cultural life of New York City, economy foam withstanding, than Paula Scher. And I am so pleased to let you know that Paula is my guest today on Design Matters. Before we start our conversation, just let me tell you a little bit more about her. Paula Scher began her graphic design career as a record cover art director at both Atlantic and CBS Records in the 1970s. In 1984, she co-founded Koppel & Share, and in 1991, she joined Pentagram as a partner. Drawing from what Tom Wolfe has called the big closet of art and design history, classic and pop iconography, literature, music, and film, Paula creates images that speak to contemporary audiences with extraordinary emotional impact and appeal. Paula is a member of the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame. Her work has been exhibited all over the world and is represented in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art and the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York, as well as many, many others. Her teaching career includes over two decades at the School of Visual Arts, along with positions at the Cooper Union and Yale. In 2002, Princeton Architectural Press published her career monograph, Make It Bigger. Welcome, Paula. Thank you for being here in Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi. 
I, I want to start by reading a quote about you that Carrie Jacobs wrote in the most recent Pentagram book. Um, and this is the quote. Paula, as it turns out, she writes, is not in her heart of hearts a graphic designer, even though she has been successfully posing as one her whole adult life. Rather, she is an outsider artist as crazed about typography as the Reverend Howard Finster was about his garden of spirituality-driven sculpture. Do you feel that accurately describes you? Well, I'm masquerading as something. <laughs> it's a graphic designer. Um I'm obsessed with that with typography that part is is um, is true um, whether or not I think of myself as a graphic designer I, I I always I never thought of myself as anything else so um, I would contradict that part okay um, you've often talked about imitating the work of pushpin in your early days and the first book you created a couple and share was a book of so-called bad imitations of the beginnings of famous novels. Um, would you say you have a particular interest in the idea or the concept of imitation? Well, I learned typography that way. Um, I, when I was in uh, Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia, um, I was uh, taught design uh, in the Swiss international tra- tradition. And uh, it was a, about sort of organizing things and making things neat and lining things up and working on very rigid grids and managing white space. And I was a natural disorganized slob. <laughs> and I still am, and, and equated that form of design to cleaning up my room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was something I, I didn't want to do because I was essentially a rebellious teenager at the point I was I was studying that, and I I looked for other ways to work, and um, you know I was uh, inspired by everything that kids are inspired by when they're in college, record covers in the music industry, um, bamboo rolling papers, uh, things that went on in trendy stores. And I, at that particular time in the 60s, the the alternative to the international style was really drawing from history. I mean, uh, 60s psychedelia was reinvented in Art Nouveau, and um, Art Deco was fast on its heels, and uh, Pushpin employed those styles. So... Um, I became uh, a style digger. You know, I'd I'd, Mm -hmm. I'd, um, learned to master virtually any form and uh, actually taught myself how to design by robbing from the past. Now, did you always know that you wanted to be a designer? Is that when when you were a little girl, did you say, I want to grow up and be a graphic designer? Oh, I didn't know what a graphic designer was. I mean, I used to make uh, paper dolls and, uh, uh, you know, create comic books. Um, I think like every kid, and I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I thought I wanted to be an artist, and I thought I'd make drawings and paintings. And I got to Tyler and discovered I couldn't draw and I couldn't paint. <laughs> and actually, I couldn't design very well either. Uh, when I took basic design in my second year, uh, my teacher asked me why I was in art school. Um, I was so terrible. What did you uh, say? I said I want to be an artist, and he said to me, "Cooking is an art." I remember that very distinctly. Um, <laughs> was that his way of discouraging you or oh, making yeah, you work yeah, harder yeah, for actually, it? Years later, he, he actually is a lovely man named Bob Stein who um, taught at the School of Fine Arts in Philadelphia and invited me years later back to teach and introduced me to the class telling them they could take absolutely no credit at all for my success. <laughs> <laughs> a very, very sweet um, statement. But uh, in my third year at, at Tyler, I took uh, a class called uh, Graphic Design. Um, which was different from basic design and that it was problem solving and uh, you had to come up with ideas. And uh, my craft abilities were weak. 
uh, and my execution of things were always sloppy, but my ideas were good. So what was the what what gave you that motivation to persevere and continue on? What did you feel despite what your teachers were saying? You felt like you had something that you needed to express, or what well, was it that kept you going? Um, I wanted to be an illustrator because I I perceived um, problem solving as in cre- you know creating images, and uh, the typography was sort of. Um, a necessary part of the project, like you would have to create an image and then there would be words that would, that would be coupled with these images to create a message. And I never could, I could never design the typography. I was, the, the prevailing uh, technology at the time was press type, which is, you know, mm-hmm. something that you ran, rubbed down and stuck on paper and uh, it came in about three different typefaces when I was in school. I think there was Helvetica and some Souvenir, kind of, I remember. Oh well, that's 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 much later. They weren't. Oh, oh, oh. Then. They had <laughs> they had essentially. I remember Helvetica. I think Melior, or and um, uh, something else that looked like uh, Lydian cursive. You know, Lydian <laughs> really really grim stuff. And and I would rub it down, and it would bubble and pop up and look like holy hell. Oh. And uh, my teacher Stanislaw Sigorski told me to illustrate with type. You know, to to take the type and make illustration of it, and that's what got me designing. Well, I want to come back after our break and talk a little bit more about that. I'd like to let everyone know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the fabulous Paula Scher, partner at Pentagram Design. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On Managing Technology the Right Way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Joe Gall every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of Business Talk, businessamericaradio.com. Think you've got a grip on the profit potential your property has? Tune in to VoiceAmerica.com Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Dennis will teach you the ins and outs of the massive world of real estate. You will learn the rewards and pitfalls of why to invest in commercial real estate. You'll also hear from experts in property management, lending, title work, tax-deferred exchanges, legal issues, and many entrepreneurial investors. The best part? You'll learn to generate a regular income that will lead to enticing capital gains. So don't miss one moment of Commercial Real Estate 101 with Dennis Manning. Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, right here on voiceamerica.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business.
Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.17 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the marvelous Paula Scher, partner at Pentagram Design. If you'd like to join our conversation, then why wouldn't you? Or if you have a question for Paula, please call 1-866-233-7861. And Paula, before the break, we were talking about one of your professors encouraging you to use type to illustrate. And when I was reading Make It Bigger, I was really, really intrigued by how he encouraged you to do that and then ultimately how, I guess, that set you forth on your own personal journey with type. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, when I was in the music business, um, uh, I was an art director and I purchased a lot of illustration or photography. And uh, I would... I never liked record covers that were, of course, in those days, 12 and 3 eighths by 12 and 3 eighths. I never liked to border them. I liked when the images bleeded off the surface. So um, what I would do was to figure out how the typography would work, I'd paint on top of these illustrations or photographs, uh, and I would actually comp typography uh, because there, that, was, that was the way you showed what something looked like, like I could draw any typeface by hand. And I became... Uh, this goes back to employing style. I became facile with styles, and I would complement complement specific illustrations or photography with this this type that I was essentially hand painting on top. And then, as uh, the decade progressed, the type began to take over, um, and uh, I became more interested in typography than image. And uh, the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I was, and I actually uh, became far more abstract. Um, because typography is, is so spectacular because the letter forms are abstractions and yet the words themselves have meaning. So it, it, the idea of painting with words has become something very powerful to me. It's something I do. And now you're also doing paintings um, as well as your graphic design work. Um, well, I'm doing, I paint, I paint uh, maps, right. uh, which are essentially word paintings. And, and I don't... I see it as a, a direct growth right out of what I'm doing uh, as a graphic designer. I mean, the difference is that because it's personal and I'm doing it not for a client but for myself, I don't have to uh, make corrections. Are you influenced by a lot of the early conceptual artists like Lawrence Wiener or Douglas Hubler or Robert Barry? I wouldn't say as much as Ed Ruscha, who, who really mm-hmm. um, yes. uh, I'm totally knocked out by. But I like all of them, um, and I appreciate what they're doing. And I think it's a, a very contemporary form of uh, uh, communication. I mean, painting uh, with words or making art with words is um, interesting because, because it's understandable and abstract at the same time. What do you think of the work of Barbara Kruger? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I think, she's, I think she's terrific. Do you collect art? No. Don't have the money. <laughs> um, one of the other quotes that I really loved in, in your book, Make It Bigger, uh, is, is you said that you would rather be the Beatles than Philip Glass. Tell me, tell me more about that. Why? Well, it was really out of a conversation I was having with uh, Ellen Lupton. Um, yes. Who uh, was interviewing me, uh, I think, 
during the first triennial show, and um, I was talking about uh, making design for for the population. Um, there, there were sort of uh, in the United States uh, various groups of designers who can be influential and come out of specific schools or areas, and there are uh, practitioners, and there are, there are people who are largely academic, and um, the people that are largely ac- academic make some sensational works that very few people see. Uh, mostly they're seen by schools or people within the design community, and, and the amount of um, images that are reproduced are, are really very small. It may be somebody doing a uh, a school, influential school publication or poster, uh, where there may be, you know, a couple thousand copies produced and the thing is reproduced in, in design annuals and design community is influenced by it, but the general public is not. And, uh, that was really what I was talking to in that I always really wanted to make work that would have incredible mass appeal. I'm, I'm really happy when something I've designed is is seen by huge public, um, and uh, that's really that really gives me a kick. I mean, I love the fact that the Daily Show book sold two million copies, even though I know it's John Stewart that's doing it because it's participating in something that, that's in the public forefront and um, gets engages the public in design. And so that that matters to me a lot. You created one of the most memorable album covers of all time, um, the first Boston cover for. One or two listeners that might God not is it know horrible. that. Pardon? God is it horrible? <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I think I have one of the first editions of those of, of that that cover. I have to get you to sign it for me. But do you really feel like it's terrible? I mean, oh, do you, do you, oh, yeah. you don't feel like it, it's, it, it's it, a test it, of it's, time? It's a well. It was a it's it's a piece of kitsch. Um, it was it, it was enforced uh, in a political situation, um, and I never thought the illustration was was particularly good good if it's kind, but it it really is has to do with some of the accidental na- nature of how public and design get together. Um, you know, the thing, the album comes out, and there's one hit single on, on this band's record called More Than a Feeling. Right. And for some re- reason, at that particular moment in time, it sold 7 million records uh, right out the door. I don't know how many records it sold at this point in time. It must be at least 30 or 40 million. But but that was extraordinary in the record business at that time, and 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 this thing is was a phenomenal success, and I don't have any sense of why. And well, it's I just one of those moments in time the stars align and everything happens, and absolutely. all of a sudden, and so much of yeah. this stuff is incredibly accidental. And I, and of course, as a practitioner at that particular point of time, and relation, it was it was one of many illustrations with typography attached to it that I commissioned in the seventies. And why that one particularly it wasn't even particularly good of its kind, but it was it was in the in sort of the genre of many that I had done. Well, you know what it is, Paula. I think that in in looking at it, and I really spent a lot of time this week looking at it. It's one of the first album covers that probably teens could project themselves into. Well, I think it was very male uh, mm-hmm. for one thing, and Boston had a, a huge male following. Uh, they were you know thirteen to sixteen year old boys who liked heavy metal. But it's, I have to say that, you know, it was allegorical also. And, and then when Star Wars became popular in the 80s um, and, and had that kind of massive cult following or even, even Star Trek, I started to, to get the sense of why that thing may have caught on a bit. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was this magic little world that you could suddenly go into, and it was rebellious, and it was sexy, and it was lamey, and, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe it was created for the boys and the girls that loved them back then, but, you know, I was a huge fan. I mean, I listened to More Than a Feeling probably, you know, obsessively for months, and, and just, you know, I was also a Yes fan, and I, I just found that type, you know, whether it be the work that you were doing or Roger Dean's work for Yes, to be able to go into this alternative universe for a little while and feel so sophisticated and far away, I think it was just a really magical experience. You know, the first time that people our age could be able, that, that could actually escape through a visual context. And I think it's it's really important in, in the grand scheme of things in that way, you know, in terms of graphic well, design. Well, I think we're, we're all affected um, by something visually very much when we're a certain age, usually in, the adole- in adolescence or uh, maybe a bit later, things impact you that, that you never, and you never see anything else the same way again. I mean, I, to me, there's no, there's no album cover that will ever be better than Sgt. Pepper. And, and it was because of where I was at the time, what it was, what the music was, and what the time was. And and you can I can never replace that with anything else in my psyche, even though there are covers that may be better or more interesting, or mm-hmm. or, or uh, have, things have moved along a bit or more sophisticated. But it, the time matters. Do you think that the uh, art of let's call it now CD cover design has changed dramatically since the seventies? I don't think anybody, with the exception, exception of Stefan Sagmeister, really mastered that form well. I have to say, I, I never, I never. Of course, I'm not a teenager, so I don't know how young people attach themselves to it. I imagine they feel the same way about the, the same way about it that I did about record covers, but they just seem too small to me, too intricate. And of course, now they're going all, all online; they're going to disappear entirely. Um, I, I don't know if the connection was as deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really pains me now when I see people with those gigantic uh, binders full of CDs and they throw away the jewel cases and, and the covers. It's just, you know. Well, the, so, jewel case, the jewel case was a total disaster because yeah. it actually uh, put a distance between you and the graphic um, and uh, you couldn't, you didn't have that same emotional connection to it. Um, though there were some wonderful, wonderful packages and uh, I, I think Stefan had the ability to explore the form and, um, uh, m- and be enticing with the graphic at that scale, which I think is very hard to do. It's a very small scale. Yeah, he's he's one of the few people that can even you know make tiny little business cards look magical. Right. I mean, I mean it's, it's extraordinary. I need I need big space. I can't. I <laughs> you can't have the patience for those little little things. Um, so, in, other than Stefan, would you say that there's anything, any other CD uh, covers or, or graphic work being done in the music industry that you find compelling? Well, I, I have to be honest and say I'm, I'm not paying much attention to it. So, so I don't know. I, I don't want to make a blanket statement that it's not that interesting because I, I have not been following it. Um, uh, in I, I still buy CDs, and I'm not, I'm not an iPod person, so I'm actually in record stores, but I don't remember being compelled by particularly anything. Well, I completely understand. Um, Paula, we're about to take another break. Um, I'd like to let everyone know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Paula Scher, partner at Pentagram Design. 
We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. When business is in your blood and you need answers, get connected. Call 1-866-233-7861. Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Tune in to Big Money with Mike Gaysher every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Mike will focus on the issues, needs, and problems affecting the world's largest investors. Join Mike and his guest from the institution investors industry as they discuss investing and controlling your money. Mike has spent his entire adult life in close proximity with the financial markets and has become one of the world's most sought-after teacher and speaker on topics of the securities, markets, and the economy. Author of eight books on the security markets and a monthly newsletter read by over 250,000 people, Mike brings insights, humor, and clarity to this often secretive community. So tune in every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Big Money with Mike Gaysher on business.voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Broadcasting live from New York City, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is Paula Scher, partner at Pentagram Design. If you want to join our conversation or if you have a question for Paula, please call us at 1-866-233-7861. And before the break, Paula and I were talking about album versus CD covers, um, and Paula, I wanted to ask you, um, in, in both in your book and, and some of the research that Jen Simon, my chief researcher, found on you online, um, you talk a lot about being a, a popular designer or a pop designer. 
Um, it's one of the terms that you use in, in your book to describe your style or David Carson's or Neville Brody's. And I know that you talked about popular design, but do you mean uh, pop design as an art aesthetic, or do you mean it more in terms of how people accept or don't accept it? I think I... Um I don't remember saying it in relationship to David Carson or Neville Brody, so I'm sort of thrown by that. Um, I think that you were talking about them both being very popular designers and their work being very well. They're, they're, uh, they, they, are, they were they were they are incredibly popular designers. They're, they're popular with with huge publics and have devotees and fans. But I think that I meant something different in terms of talking about popular designers with the design public as opposed to uh, pop referring to myself as a pop designer and when right. when I when I made that comment which was I think to Ellen um it was really back to to the commercial versus the academic I mean it, I don't mean pop actually in an aesthetic sense I mean pop in the fact that I do work that's designed for the real populace mm-hmm. um that that the goal of the goal of my work uh no matter uh how high I try to set the standard for it is really for a mass audience to see. Well, you know, speaking of Neville Brody and, and David Carson, I just saw the most recent Hillman Curtis film on David Carson. Have you seen that yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. And it's, it's, his videos are great, though. They're it's, oh, they're amazing. They're, they're just stunning. But it's, it's actually, I think, a fairly... David says a couple of fairly, I don't know if I even want to use the word provocative, maybe heady things. <laughs> and um, he talks about the path of design innovation, and he comments that he feels that he was passed the baton from Neville Brody, Mm -hmm. and he's surprised that no one has picked up the baton from him yet. I was actually rather shocked by that. Um, So I'm wondering how you feel about that. Who do you think is doing great work today? Huh, well... I'm sorry he, he feels that way. I know. I was. I, I actually. I, I watched it twice just to make sure I was. I really was getting it the right. You know exactly the way he said it and exactly how he meant it. And I was just stunned. Well, I think that that he may be right in one aspect. In that, um, uh, both of them uh, were were typographically innovative in a way that was very signature-oriented. Um, I mean, David Carson, uh, David Carson's work is, is very, very identifiable regardless of, of what the project is, so that you're, you're always looking at signature as opposed to um, the individual thing that's being presented, um, so that... Uh, if he if he designs an ad campaign for say two different completely opposing types of clients, the visual similarity is still there. Yes. Where where uh, there are many other designers who I think are working today who who tend to be more idea driven or client specific, and there may not be somebody who is actually using their style as a personal signature uh, to solve problems. I would say that there are. Uh, three young designers that I think are phenomenal, and they're not style-driven, they're idea-driven, though they bring an enormous amount of style to their work. I mean, one of them is 
uh, a functional illustrator is Christoph Niemann, who's mm-hmm. a genius. Um, and uh, then there's Nicholas Blackman, who's Yeah, Nicholas was on the show two, two weeks ago. Brilliant art director and designer and illustrator, and Paul Sayer. Uh, the three of them are great, and but they're not um, they're not about signature. Sometimes you see their work and you don't know who did it. And you look at the credit, uh, and then you understand the the line of thinking. So it it may be that there isn't anybody who who has um, been selling a specific style that you recognize as a designer right now. I think that that may be the baton that has not gotten passed. Mm. I'd be interested in hearing more about what you think about that once you see the, the film. Um, Paula, we have two callers on the line waiting to speak with you. The first is Gerald from New York. Gerald, welcome to Design Matters. Hello. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Um, I'd like to read a quote before I ask the question. Sure. Um, it, it's my favorite quote, and it actually is on the cornerstone of the National Archives. Um, it says, The heritage of the past is the seed that brings forth the harvest of the future. I was wondering, um, I think it's a generational thing, and I wonder if you think it doesn't cross over into young designers. Uh, when, when they're asked, for example, to perhaps redesign um, uh, a standard brand, um, uh, a favorite brand, it seems like they don't really uh, reach into the past. They don't have a, um, a curiosity or a respect for brand history, and, and I wonder how you think that affects design overall. You think young designers uh, don't respect the past? Or, I think or they don't. I, I don't think or... they even consider it. Um, I don't know that they even feel the need to look to the past in order to find the inspiration for the future. Well, it, it sounds just like they're not, they've not been trained very well. Um, the... Uh, I mean, if you were redesigning a brand, uh, the first thing you do is find out the history of it, um, because you can't you can't even begin to take it to the next phase unless you unless you understand what went before. So, if I would say if they're not doing it, they're just simply not being either instructed properly or led led appropriately. I don't I don't know if that's anything more than ignorance. Um, <laughs> well, I would think that too, but it sort of seems that the, the climate just it's a generational thing. Um, uh, and we see it across the board, not just in design. But I'm, I was just wondering if you if you see that specifically in design, or do you, do you see when standard brands are redesigned? Do you see there's something lacking? Well, I never see. Um, I never can look at a brand being redesigned and look at the result of it and actually attribute it to the designer by himself. I always, I never, I never look at it like that in a vacuum because I always suspect that somewhere along the way there was. There was other corporate input into the situation that made that thing become that specific result. Oh, you mean like like when they use demographics to make the decision instead of just as a um, an informational tool? Oh, that's one that's one aspect of corporate <laughs> hierarchical fear, where they they think they think it's something is going to be too risky or too scary. Right. Too... I mean, do you think then then really the issue isn't so much the designers, but where marketing uh, brand managers just simply don't have backbone to make decisions and be inspired and try I to think, trust I think designers? That's probably, probably some of the problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've never run into young designers out of school who are single-handedly reshaping brands. <laughs> that's why I just, I just don't think that they're probably responsible for it. I mean, if they, if they are not doing the appropriate research, then they're just not, not well-trained. Right. But that's, I don't think that that's attitudinal. I think that's ignorance. Um, 
I mean, I didn't know very much coming out of school either. Somebody had to show me that it was important to do this thing. Right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you for calling, Gerald. Uh, Paul, we have another caller, Jen from New Jersey. Jen, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, I've got a question for Paula. I read some interviews you've given where you talk about how important it is for designers to be able to reach the most senior decision makers when working on a project. Right. As someone who works for a design firm, I completely agree with that. I wonder if you have any ideas or suggestions for accomplishing that. It's a really um, hard thing to accomplish um, when you're young especially and you're starting out. I don't know what point you are in your work. But um, I think that the thing to do in entering any dialogue with a client is to obtain right away, understand what the political structure of the organization is uh-huh. and, and, and start to figure out how to navigate the playing field um, and figure out who those decision makers are first. And then once you, you've identified them, figure out how you can reach them in the most direct manner. And uh, actually in my book I, I talk about um, people within organizations who I perceive to be sort of like patrons. They're, they're people who want to make good things happen and um, they'll navigate you through the organization to get the thing done. And if you have them among your client, uh, the client at any level, they're going to be tremendously instrumental in helping you achieve your goals. If you don't have it, it's nearly impossible if you're starting at a low level in a corporate hierarchy to navigate that terrain. Okay. Well, thank you. Was that helpful? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to read the book. (laughs) Thank you for calling. In your book, Paula, you talk about, you write in depth about your lack of regimented design process prior to going to Pentagram. Has that changed substantially over the years now? Well, you know, I... It's, it's interesting about the design process. I have a, an ability as an individual um, to um, uh, reach conclusions very quickly, uh, which is often embarrassing. But if you actually read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, mm-hmm. he actually did a great job explaining the process. I am, I am what he calls a thin slicer. Mm-hmm. In other words, I can be given... Uh, a huge amount of information and actually look at it and know which re- information is relevant and what I have to pay attention to and then make, make decisions based on that information. The problem is that, that that form of decision-making can be very scary to somebody else because it looks like you haven't done your homework. So, so what I've had to do is actually, and it becomes easier and easier as, as reputation grows, people expect it from me. So, so Lately, it's been not as much of a problem as it used to be when I was when I was a bit younger. But I've had to learn how to construct a presentation so I'm very carefully taking somebody through my process um, and they're understanding why I logically made decisions that I actually made very instinctively. Mm-hmm. I was really intrigued by your theory of the arc of the moods of a meeting, and when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk to you about that. I thought it was one of the most fascinating and accurate um, charts of, of a mood of a meeting that I've ever seen, um, but in the meantime, I'd like everybody to know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am talking with Paula Scher, partner at Pentagram Design. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away.
more and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. What stock should I buy? When is it time to sell? Where do I turn for honest advice on my portfolio? For the answers to these questions, tune in to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, Oliver, Greg, and their guests will discuss the daily going-ons of Wall Street as well as give you tips on how to identify the hottest sectors and trends in the market. Improve your portfolio. Listen to Trading in Today's Markets with Oliver Alvarez and Greg Capra. Broadcast live on Business America Radio every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Business talk is all we do. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are your accounts stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic? Are your finances flowing at two miles an hour? It's time to crank your cash into high gear by tuning in to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense with Bullseye Bruce Horowitz. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Bullseye Bruce will give you no-nonsense, common-sense financial advice that anyone can understand, as well as bring you clarity on some of the most complex and confusing financial issues today. So get out of that traffic jam and listen to Making Sense of Financial Nonsense every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Voice America Business would like to welcome you to Life Achieve Total Wealth Management. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.47 Eastern Time on a beautiful Friday afternoon in New York City. And you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host. And my guest today is Paula Scher, partner at Pentagram Design. And Paula, you've been at Pentagram now for, I believe it's 16 years? 14 years. 14. And, and you, you've written that Pentagram is, is not for everyone, though people might all dream that it could be. Um, and it took, you, it took a while for you to get used to it. How so? Well, uh, I was on my own. I had one partner, and then I was on my own for a year, and um, I had to acclimate myself to this broad partnership. 
I have seven partners in, in New York, and uh, actually seven with me, and 19 partners worldwide, and there are um, procedures for doing things. Uh, we have long partners meetings where we um, set up our policies of how we're going to function. And, you know, I, I was used to being a loose cannon. Um, in what way? Well, I, I just, you know, spent whatever money I wanted to spend to run my business. I took up whatever space I wanted to make. I hung my work up all over the place. You know, and now I have to share the wall space with my partners and look at their work instead of my fabulous work. So you do, one does have to rein them, sell yourself in. Now, do you find that the partners all have very unique and distinctly different personalities? Is there any common denominators between you all? Uh, there's one real interesting common denominator, is that um, we're all feisty middle-class kids, and um, we all want to make stuff. And we all want to work hard, and we're, we're all terrified of being the worst performer in the group. So we're all motivated to work hard. So it's a, a sort of healthy competitive spirit. Very healthy competitive spirit, and it tends to fail when there's somebody who actually doesn't come with those attributes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, from what I understand, people usually try out for a year or so, is that correct? Uh, well, there's there's a partner-elect period for around two years where um, you sort of start and learn how to run your business and fit into the group and establish your profitability and, and figure out what kind of clients you'll draw and, and do that within the group. And, and uh, mostly those periods are successful. Um, who do you consider to be a role model now, Paula? And after all that you've done and all you've, you've accomplished and all the work at Pentagram and working with some of the best designers in the world, being one of the best designers in the world, who do you, who do you admire? What, what kind of work do you really like? Well, you're actually asking me this question at a very odd time because um, I've actually, I, I feel like I don't have any role models anymore. There aren't, there aren't many women at my age working. Um, or at least at at the level, there are some, and there they tend to be. There 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 are a few architects. There's some there's some product designers. Graphic design profession seems to be a young profession, and so as I go forward, I I actually am am sort of uh, wondering how long one keeps this going. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, what matters is to continually do new stuff, to 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 conquer areas that I've never done before because I was capable in the past of moving from uh, records to magazines to packaging to to branding to environmental signage um, to painting, and I want to keep it moving. You know, I want to be a neophyte, and and the longer you live, the harder it is to be new at something. Um, but uh, I, I'm... At the moment, I'm sort of at a loss for role models. I have to say, I look to—I find myself looking looking at younger people rather than older people um, for inspiration, mm-hmm. uh, and and also um, uh, admiring their energy. I mean, I, I mentioned Nicholas, Nicholas and Christoph and and, um, and Paul before, um, and uh, you know, I enjoy the company of my younger partner, Abbott Miller. As well as my partner Michael Bay Brood, who's also somewhat younger than me, um, you know that that uh, I seem I seem to be drawing a lot, um, look, looking behind me as a, as opposed to in front of me, um, and enjoying them. Now you're married to Seymour Quast. Absolutely. How long have you been married? 
Which which time? You married twice. We were married twice. And the first time you were in your early twenties? Yes, I, I met him when I when I was with had my portfolio in art school. I was uh, twenty one when I first met him. Love at first sight. Well, something at first sight. <laughs> I, I say, it's a it's a it's a thirty six year relationship, and and this time around we're married. Um, I guess sixteen years. And how long was the time that you were apart? We were apart six years, but we dated in between. So what's it like to be part of a power couple, <laughs> being married to Seymour Quast and his work and your work? Do you find uh, you have a lot of um, mutual interests, in, or do you find that you have um, a competitive spirit? How was how, how your relationship? I think all of those things are true. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, we're both visual people, so visual things matter. So we can we can agree or disagree, but the stuff the stuff matters. You know, I mean, if you you see something you like on a highway and you have to point to the sign or 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 see something the same way that 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 that's a very big part of life. Uh, I think there's a reasonably healthy competition. We do very different work. Uh, yes. And it's gotten much more different. I think I think I was much more uh, uh, a mentor of his, uh, particularly in the record cover years. You know, where I where I was an art director and I was I was heavily involved in purchasing illustration and thought thought like an illustrator and and um, I've, I've pretty much become so much more of a, a abstract and modernist in my older years, which I never thought I'd be. But um, and then of course when I moved into environmental work, it really, which is something he's actually was, has never done, um, I, and the time frame in doing environmental design is very different from from graphics because the pace is totally different. It has much more to do with architecture. Um, it, it's it's less he's less of a mentor I, I think than he used to be in that capacity. Though the work is still very inspiring. And Seymour um, is amazing because he gets in every day and 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 continually draws and continually creates things and 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 seems to never uh, be bored with it or tired of it and that is totally inspiring. I was just going to say that sounds incredibly inspiring, Paula. We have one more caller. I'd like to get in before the end of the show. Tom from Boston. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Thank you. Uh, hello, Paula. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Wanted to ask you a quick question about. Uh, being a woman in the design industry and if you were ever treated differently or if it ever, you know, was a hindrance or a help to you? Oh, it was both. Um, I think uh, initially I had a lot of trouble being taken seriously, um, especially when I was on my own uh, in uh, my 30s. Uh, I, I had difficulty getting high-paying jobs. Um, I think I was uh, uh, stiffed a lot. I would... I would you know, be hired to do some kind of packager identity uh, from a, a a company, and they would they would abandon my work and then take it to a big firm, and I would end up you know receiving half pay or, or something. Oh. I had a lot of that, uh, and uh, sometimes it's worked for my to my advantage. It it depends upon the group. I mean, and and. Uh, very often, I could I could walk into a room and be disarming and 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 win win the situation just as easily as lose it. So it, it, it's uh, it's been a trade off, uh, but lately it seems to be less of an issue for me. Thank you for calling, Thank you. Uh, Tom from Boston. 
Um, Paula, is the time in our show where uh, I like to call this the pop culture quiz and it's part of the broadcast where I ask my guests some questions about things that are going on right now, off-the-cuff topics that I'm curious about or obsessing over. So um, what was the name of your first crush? The first guy I had a crush on? Yes. Oh, Kenny Oppenheim. <laughs> what do you value most in your friends? Honesty. What is something that very few people know about you? Uh, I'm uh, socially shy. What quality do you admire in your clients? Honesty. <laughs> First luxury purchase ever. That's what I'm trying to remember. I don't know if this was the first, but I remember spending a really, 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 really a lot, a lot of money on a Sony skirt in the 70s. Ooh. I couldn't afford. <laughs> what? Name one guilty pleasure. Uh, guilty pleasure. What do I, what do I do? I'm trying to think what do I do that's... Um, Excess, excessive bath. <laughs> what is your most marked characteristic? Oh, God. Uh, I'm a smartass. <laughs> and describe yourself in three words besides smartass. Hmm. <laughs> That's short. <laughs> um, with... Um, a, a big personality, I'd say. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you, Paula. We've unfortunately come to the end of our broadcast, and I'd like to thank you for being such a marvelous guest. I'd also like to thank the kind and patient people at Voice America Business, Denise Dion, Chris Hilliard, Lori Call, Robert Orkin, my production manager, Ruben Colomb, and my executive producer, Brian Travis. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling, my incredible producer, Lisa Grant, and my chief researcher, Jen Seinman. Join me next week for Design Matters. My guest is the author of The Substance of Style, Virginia Postrel. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, or we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.